title of my sermon this morning is From Gloom to Hope, the Messiah Has Come. On the afternoon of Monday, June 10th of 1991, every parent's worst nightmare took place uh, to 11-year-old J.C. Dugard. The, the South Lake Tahoe native was kidnapped while walking home from school. What makes this even more tragic was the fact that her stepfather witnessed the whole thing. Witnessed the whole thing, couldn't do anything about it. Within hours of the search, um, within hours the search began, but sadly days, weeks, months, and even years went by without her ever being found. I cannot even begin to uh, to even understand the pain that the family had been must have been going through. And and again, it, with the whole you know fact that the stepfather witnessed uh, this whole thing, yet it was he he couldn't do anything. He couldn't actually uh, reach out and and, uh, and and help her. It must have just been traumatic and horrible for him. And I can also understand why the family, why Tina and Carl Probin, which is him, which is which is their name, um, why they would give up hope. And yet they didn't. They never gave up hope. Which is why uh, it must have been an amazing feeling when, on uh, August 24th of 2009, the 18 years after captivity, Dugard was found when her captor Philip Garaldo took her, her two daughters who were 15 and 20, fathered by him and his wife Nancy to visit his parole officer in Concord, California. They were actually held in Antioch, California. Uh, the officer separated them and eventually found out that she was who, um, who he thought she was. And, and they were reunited. What makes, I think, I mean, I think what I'm trying to get at, the point I'm trying to make in this introduction is that we should never give up hope. It's easy to give up hope. It's easy to lose faith. It's easy to get frustrated. Yet, in reality, we should never give up hope that God is not going to provide for us. The Dugard family could have easily said, well, there's just no hope that she's ever going to come back. Why even, why even continue searching? That's not what they did. In this world with so much confusion and uncertainty, it is easy to lose focus and it is easy to give up. This morning I want to talk to you about the only source of long-lasting hope, that of course being Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. But before we do, let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I praise you and I thank you for all that you've done and the blessings you poured down upon us again, Lord. I ask that you bless me now as I do my best to declare your word accurately and as we look at this, this first Advent candle, this first uh, um, uh, the prophet's candle uh, that's going to talk about hope and the, the overall message behind that candle um, being that we have hope, Lord. We have hope in you. So Lord, I ask that you bless us. I ask that you keep us focused on you. I, hope, I ask that you allow us to have hope even when things get difficult. Lord, we praise you and we thank you in your wonderful name. Amen. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't, go ahead and uh, look under your seat and uh, you might find one or in the seat in front of you. I should have clicked down earlier. That's her now. And now there we go. Alright, so the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines Advent as the coming into being or use. The four Sundays before Christmas are called Advent Sundays, and we, in, in, in lighting these candles and doing this wreath, we celebrate Jesus' first coming, the first Advent of Christ into this world. One day in the future, we're going to get to celebrate His second coming with Him in heaven, you know, after we are raptured up and He one day returns to this earth for the second Advent of Christ. Over the next four Sundays, we're going to be lighting each of these four candles, the three purple and one pink, on this Advent wreath. As we light them, I will be preaching about the overall theme or meaning behind each of the candles. That's my plan. On Christmas Eve, you see the little candle with the cross. We call that the Christ candle. And that represents, of course, Jesus, the Messiah, being born. 
Today we, we lit the first candle, the first purple candle, which is called the prophet's candle, represents the hope we have in Jesus the Messiah. There are hundreds of messianic prophecies. I think that there's, a, there's some debate on the actual number, but there's more than 300 different prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Jesus' first coming, that point to his first advent. And what's amazing is that the vast majority of them have been fulfilled, and the rest of them will be fulfilled in Christ. So the point is all of them are, are going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Most of them already have. And we read a couple earlier, and I'm going to tell you one today, that, that talk about how Jesus, the Messiah, God in human form, gives us hope, and how his birth was the beginning of the process that would give us, give, eventually give us salvation. So this morning I want to take a look at one of the most recognized prophecies about the birth of Christ, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. In studying through this passage in the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9, I want to make a statement which tells us where our hope comes from. So the statement's already in your bulletin, but if you don't look at your bulletin, you might be surprised. So first of all, we have hope. That's the first half of the statement. We have hope. So look at Isaiah chapter 9 with me. Let's go ahead and read down. We're going to um, kind of bounce down each verse from 1 to 5 for this first half of the statement. So look at verse 1 with me. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Tali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So her is in reference to a couple different things. I'm going to start from the broad reference and kind of break it down to what it actually says. Her is obviously in reference to the people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel, the, the Israelites. But then if we really want to break it down, we need to understand that the nation of Israel had a civil war. They divided into the southern and the northern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was typically known as Israel, where the southern kingdom was known as Judah. The southern kingdom was made up of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, where the other ten tribes were in the northern kingdom. And then we see that, as it says in our text, that the Hur is really in reference to the tribes, or the, and more specifically, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. And I, just, I like maps, so there's the map. I unfortunately can't really see very well. But if you look near the top, right up there is the Sea of Galilee, and to the side of it is Naphtali, and then right next to Naphtali is Zebulun. And those are the lands that, that are being referenced here. And of course, in that land, in those lands, is the city of Nazareth, where Jesus was born. This is the, that area that the, that the prophet's talking about is the location where the vast majority of Jesus' ministry took place. In the three years that he ministered on the earth, that's where he did most of his ministry. Now, there is a significance when it comes to the use of the phrase, by way of the sea. So, the reason these two areas, and the reason the whole northern kingdom, and then again, the reason the entire country of Israel, the divided country of Israel, has gloom in their lives, was because of the fact that they were under captivity. They had been conquered by uh, other forces. The northern kingdom at the time of Isaiah's writing was conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians attacked the kingdom by way of the sea, and as you see, as, as it says, by way of the sea, in reference to the eventual Messiah coming, the same direction is the way that the Assyrians came. They came by way of the Mediterranean Sea. They landed on the, on the shores and they attacked these areas and took over and conquered this northern kingdom. Now Isaiah is saying that one day their glory will be returned by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And again, of course, like I just said, that's exactly what Jesus spent all this time. I just think it's such a powerful statement to understand what is taking place, what is happening here. 
Now look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in, dark, in a dark land, the light will shine on them. I think darkness is a beautiful example of our emotions sometimes. You know, sometimes we have such up and downs, we get frustrated, we feel like we're in darkness, even though we're not. I mean, if the Spirit's within us, we're never in darkness. Yet sometimes we feel down, we feel out, we feel distressed. Isaiah tells the Israelites, and now us, that we have hope in the midst of our distress. We have hope in the midst of our darkness. We might feel as though we are stuck in the darkness, but light is coming for the readers of his time, and has come for us today. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light. So we need to walk in the light of Jesus. Now look at verse 3. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The light spread over the land will bring about gladness. I mean, as you can envision, if you're not in darkness, if you're not sad and upset, you're happy. That's the opposite of things here. Gladness is what's going to take place to us. We're going to be able to embrace the gladness, embrace the joy that we have. The prophet gives two illustrations for this joy. The first is of the harvest. If you worked all season long preparing for the harvest, you'd be a little upset if there was nothing to harvest. So the point is, think about how happy these people are when they harvest the good. They finally get the fruit of their labor. Then the other one is the, the spoils of battle. And I kind of think of this from two perspectives. One, obviously you're getting something. So the spoils of battle is in reference to you know, taking from the people you have conquered. You know, you're, you're getting richer from these people. But then the other element here is, in my mind, if you're getting the spoils of battle, I mean, the battle's over. I mean, and I'm thinking that's a good thing as well. Now, let's go ahead and if you, like I said, if you have your Bible, we you go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 15. Keep your finger here on Isaiah. We're going to go right back there in a minute. But let's go to John 15 and look at another I am statement of Jesus. John chapter 15, verse 1 to 11. So the Lord Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, so it, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire. And they, burn, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit so, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments. And abide, in, and abide in His love. Then verse 11 is the key. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. See, Jesus is where the joy comes from. That's kind of really what I'm getting at here. 
We have joy in Christ. And that's the only true place you're going to find joy. Now look at verse 4. Go back to Isaiah, look at verse 4. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. So the prophet tells us why the people will be joyful over the light. This is why. Of course, they're under slavery. They're enslaved to the Assyrians. They are burdened by that slavery. They have a yoke, which again, that yoke is the thing that an oxen will put over. They put over the oxen's shoulders or the horse's shoulders, and that's how they're able to pull things or how they're able to work in the fields. That same yoke was the, the burden upon the shoulders of the Israelites. They were overwhelmed. They were, being, they were enslaved. Maybe not the way they were enslaved in Egypt, but they were still under someone else's captive. They were captive to someone else. I mean, if, if you, if suddenly, uh, I don't know, Canada decided to take over and they invade the United States, even if we're not, nothing really changes for us, we're still enslaved to them. We're still captive to them. They are still in charge of us. So the burden was strenuous on them. And then the, uh, the, uh, the reference here in verse 4, you know, where it says, a yoke of their burden in the staff on their shoulders. Staff is a reference to the rod or the staff that the slave drivers, that the, uh, the, the rulers of the foreign um, conquering power had over them. And what Isaiah is saying is these are going to be removed by the Messiah. Then Isaiah says that the rod of their oppressor, again, the, the staff, the, the, the weapon of their oppressor, will be broken by the coming Messiah. In the same way that God interceded in, at the battle, battle of Midian. If you don't know the story of Judges chapter 7, you have Gideon, he has this big old army, he's ready to roll. And then God says, well, your army's a little too big. It's too big. 32,000 people, you don't need all those people. So he goes, and he, he tells us, or not Isaiah, he tells Gideon, to tell the people, if you don't want to fight, you don't have to. And he, you know, um, Gideon does that. A whole bunch of the people leave. And now all he has is 10,000 people. Well, okay, a little bit smaller. I think I would have been a little bit more comfortable with 32,000, but 10,000 is going to work. God didn't think so. So God says, take them down to the riverbed and have them drink the water. And anyone who drank the water by cupping the water into their hands and drinking it were to stay and the rest were to go. So now we go from 32,000 to 10,000. Now all there are are 300 people, 300 soldiers. That, that know how to drink water correctly. I don't know about the rest of the stuff, but that's all they know how to do. I, I personally would have some questions for God, but Gideon did not thank God. So after a dream from God, Gideon, he comes up with a plan. And not, God came up with a plan, he told Gideon this plan. Gideon positioned his army around the camp in the middle of the night with trumpets, pitchers, and torches. The trumpets were blown, the pitchers were broken, and the torches were lit. And as you would expect, this confused the Midianite army. They ran off in confusion because 300 men tricked them into, into doing so. And again, the point is that God provides. That's the point. 32,000 men weren't going to provide. It was God who was going to provide. In the same way that God's going to provide. for the, He provided for the Israelites in the same way that He provides for us every day of our lives. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult, or battle tumult, in cloak rolled in blood, will be burned, or will be for burning for fuel for the fire. The significance here, the point here, is that there's no longer need for the boots of, war, of battle. There's no, no, no longer need for the garments of battle. So burn them so you can heat your house. That's all they're good for now. That's the point. And that's a very significant point. I mean, again, understanding the strain of war, and now you have this, this wonderful joy you can have because the war's over. There's something to be joyful of. There's something to celebrate. 
Now, of course, we know that the people of Israel took this the wrong way. They misunderstood this entire section here. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and to have a physical rule over their kingdom. They were waiting for him to conquer the Romans at the time of Jesus, but also the Assyrians, the, the Greeks, uh, the Medes and the Persians, as well as the, um, um, the Babylonians and uh, the Greeks. There we go. They were waiting for them, their, their, their bondage to be lifted from them. The physical bondage. What they missed, though, of course, was the fact that the first advent of Christ was meant to free them from the spiritual bondage, the sin that they were enslaved to, and to Satan who wants them to be for him. The burden that sin places upon mankind's shoulders is gone if we turn to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, another one of my favorite verses. Come to me, this is Jesus speaking, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And I'm going to go off on a side trip here. Uh, you know, the 23rd Psalm, I heard this this week in one of my uh, podcasts. I was listening to another preacher. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, make, he leads me beside quiet waters. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And then it says, he restores my soul. And I, what I kind of was thinking about is this. Like, and I, I have known nothing about cars. You know, Rich left, unfortunately. He knows everything about cars. He would relate to this. And some of you guys might. Uh, like, I think Ben's trying to fix his truck. He's trying to restore the truck. This truck's not working. Now you need to restore it to working. The fact that God restores our soul, the good shepherd restores our souls is significant because our souls are broken. They're broken by sin. They're broken by the devil. Yet God is going to restore our souls. As Jesus says, you will find rest for your souls because through Christ we can do everything. You will have hope in the midst of your hardships, in the midst of your trials and despair and depression. If you turn your life completely over to Jesus, bottom line. So you have hope, and then the final part of the statement. You have hope in Jesus, the Messiah. Let's read the prophecy, verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And then, um, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So let's go ahead and break this down. And, I, and one of my commentaries broke it down for me, so I'm not going to... I'm not going to cheat you. There's a, you can break this passage down and learn five things about the Messiah. First of all, the Messiah is going to be born a child. Uh, the implication given in parallel style is that the child, this child, a son, will be born to the nation of Israel as one of the covenant people. Meaning Jesus was going to be physically born. He was not going to float down from heaven. He was not going to have some other form of like possession kind of idea. The Antichrist is going to be possessed. An individual is going to be possessed by the devil. Jesus was not possessed by, he didn't possess anybody. He physically was born into this earth. He physically lived like us. And then we also have, he's going to be a male child. He's going to be born to an Israelite woman. He's going to be a Jewish person. He's going to be Jewish by nationality. The next thing we can learn about Jesus, about the Messiah, is that the Messiah will rule over God's people and the world. We already read earlier, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His groanings forth, his goings forth, 
are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Then, um, not Isaiah, then Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, of the, in that day the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. Jesus currently is ruling over Israel as well as the world spiritually. One day He's going to come back and He's going to rule over everything physically. I mean, and of course He's still in complete control, so technically He's ruling over it now. But He's allowing the devil to think He's doing okay, but in the end of it, Jesus is in complete control. The third thing that we can learn about the Messiah from these two verses is that the Messiah will have four descriptive names that will reveal His character. Look at the names of me. Wonderful Counselor, meaning Jesus the Messiah is exceptional. He's distinguished and without peer, the one who gives the right advice, you know, Tabitha and Adrian are therapists, and I, I think I've said this the last time I preached about this, they are probably real good therapists, but if I had a chance to sit down with Jesus, I just think I'd have a, a slightly better chance to, to, to make it through my problems, because Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Then we also have mighty God. Jesus, the Messiah, is God himself. Jesus and God are one. They're one. Jesus is God Almighty. Eternal Father is in reference to the eternal principles, the eternal qualities of Christ. Jesus did not come into being. He does not end. It's forever, eternal. He has no end. He has no beginning. And then finally, Prince of Peace. Jesus' government is one of justice and peace, one of righteousness and peace. And we see that in this next point. The Messiah, seated on David's throne, will have eternal rule in peace and righteousness. The angel Gabriel in announcing that Mary's going to give birth to the Messiah, says this regarding the Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 to 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. And then finally, the last little thing we can learn about the Messiah is that all of this, meaning... The Messiah's birth, His life, His sacrificial death, His redemptive resurrection, His spiritual reign and His physical reign, the eventual thousand-year reign on earth. All of this will be accomplished by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. By the zeal of the Lord of hosts. This is from the New American Commentary. Finally, Isaiah offers a rhetorical assurance to his listeners concerning the fulfillment of this promise. Simply stated, God Almighty Himself will do it. With unassailable zeal, determination, and passion, will concentrate. God will concentrate His efforts to accomplish this marvelous deed. Isaiah's listeners can be absolutely sure that an omnipotent, sovereign God will stand behind the fulfillment of this wonderful plan. The bottom line is we have an amazing God, an awesome God, who from the beginning of time had a plan. And that plan isn't changing, it hasn't changed. That plan is forever. And as a result of that, as a result of His love for us, we can make the statement, we have hope in Jesus, the Messiah. Let's go ahead and uh, close up. Oh, I went too far. No, I think I went too far again. There. Let me go ahead and close up. I'm going to give you something of an application here as well. In 1982, Tony Cavallo of Lawrenceville, Georgia, was working on the suspension of his 1964 Chevy Impala when the unthinkable happened. The car fell off the jacks, um, that were holding it up and pinned him under within the wheel well of this car. His mother, Angela Cavallo, ran outside to find her son unconscious and trapped under the car. She quickly called her neighbors for help, but decided that they 
were taking too long, so she took matters into her own hands by lifting the 3,500-ton car off her son uh, long enough for the jacks to be returned and for him to be pulled out from underneath. Now, this story is actually a true story. This stuff happens. I guess I don't understand it. I'm not no scientist, but like something to do with the whole you know, adrenaline thing. You know, we can somehow do some crazy stuff, which happens. But what I'm trying to say is in, this, in the sense that this mother was willing to do whatever it takes to save her son, God, is, and Jesus, of course, is willing to do whatever it takes to save us. And that's exactly what he did. He came to this earth, he lived a perfect life, and he died for our sins, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we can no longer have the blemishes that keep us out of heaven, but allows us to open the gates to heaven. But, of course, that didn't end the story there. He rose from the grave. The resurrection of Christ is what opens the gates to heaven, opens the gates for our future resurrection and our spiritual resurrection. One of my favorite verses is Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. And I think I've said this three times today, so this is my third favorite verse. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But then verse 8 is the key. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Angela Cavallo demonstrated her own love for her son by lifting the car off of, uh, off of her son so that he would live and he can, he can, he can survive. God demonstrates his own love towards us in dying for mankind. An amazing thought. And as we enter this Christmas season, I hope that's really what settles upon your hearts. Jesus took our sins on his shoulders and carried them to the cross, where he died the sacrificial death that offers forgiveness for our sins to those who accept it. But the story, like I said, does not end there. He rose from the grave. His resurrection is the key. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Christ, there would be no hope for us to go to heaven. The resurrection of Jesus... Conquering death is what sends us to heaven when we die. And all we have to do is accept this free gift and we will be saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 to 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that word, whoever, and we already got the context of that. It don't matter what race you are, don't matter what gender you are, doesn't matter who you are. Jesus died for you, Jesus loves you, and He wants you to be with Him in heaven one day. Salvation is a free gift from God. There's no strings attached. All you have to do is believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins and rose from the grave so you can go to heaven when you die and, and believe and confess this belief openly, meaning put this on display through your words and your actions. Tell other people about Christ. You know, Put a massive nativity scene on the front lawn of your house or something like that. Whatever you need to do, tell the world about Christ. Are you ready to call on the name of the Lord today? Call on Him. He will save you. Let me close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I praise you and I thank you now for all that you've done and the blessings you poured upon us. I ask that you bless us and call and just lead us, Lord, and guide us through life. Help us focus on you. Help us know that you are perfect and that you have a plan. Help us know that there will be nothing that can get in our way, that you will always be there for us, that you will always provide for us. 
Even when we feel like we're down and out, even when we feel like darkness has overtaken us, Lord, help us remember that you are the true light, Lord. That you are the light that takes over, Lord. That you embrace us and that you love us and that you died for us and that you rose for us. I thank you and I praise you for all of this in your blessed name. Amen.